So, in this episode, I'm going to talk about my experiences with various mental health teams in various places that I've lived. Um, a lot of them, unfortunately, were quite bad and poor. And still today, I still see people still waiting. Um, I go back to my early 20s when I was self-harming and had a couple of suicide attempts. I remember one day uh, I was in a really dark place and I'd been self-harming for a while and I took a rather sharp blade and absolutely cut uh, both my arms to pieces. Uh, and But the uh, mental health team was actually just across the road and I remember walking in and they see all this blood and it looked like I'd been like, I don't know, stabbed or something. And I was immediately taken in for an assessment. I spent two hours with someone uh, talking about what I was going through and the self-harming. And uh, at the end of the two hours, there was just this moment that everything just collapsed because they said they didn't actually think I was in crisis and didn't, didn't need help. Now, just picture that a minute, you know, someone self-harming for a while, sits there for two hours, goes through everything, only to be told that actually you're not in crisis, you don't actually need help, you know. And I'm just thinking now, like with um, like future experiences that I had uh, from that, whether or not even back then they were still on this, like, tick box system, it was just not, probably not... No, more knowing about knowing about because of like with the way social media is now people can share their experiences and you know they're more open apparently they're more transparent <clears throat> so yeah that i mean that then had a really negative impact on what i did like further on in life because you go to these people looking for help and that's what they're there apparently to give and offer is help but then when you're told you don't need help, you're not in crisis, we can't help you, you, t- you then lose trust and faith in a service or a system that apparently is set up to help you. So each time I went through crisis, more often than not, I dealt with it on my own because I didn't want to face that disappointment once again of reaching out for help and then being told that I didn't need it or they couldn't give it. And I know, like, uh, through talking to lots of other people on this subject, that the stories have absolute, like, mad parallels and similarities that they go, yeah, you know, I was, I was in a really bad place, suicide now, I got assessed at the hospital and then told that I didn't need help or they couldn't help. And with men's mental health, I can't help but question, is this the reason, is this the main reason that the male suicide rate is so high? Is it not, is it not only because men are maybe afraid or ashamed to come out and reach out for help, or is it more men do approach for help, but then are told that they can't be helped. So, or do the two go hand in hand? You know, it raises a lot of questions. And I hope, like, when you hear me talk about this, that it raises questions in your head and maybe you can, like, try something a little bit different and keep raising the awareness because something 
is broken in the system, very much so. You know, we all know that the NHS and the mental health side of things are underfunded and understaffed, and we are going through a bit of a pandemic crisis at the moment. Whether or not you believe it or not, that's not the issue, it's not political. What we're talking about is, is funding and staff and the correct staff and the correct system that allows the correct help to be offered and provided. But I did have some good... I have had a good experience since I moved further up north. And um, I have to say, actually, uh, the Yorkshire and Humber NHS Trust, mental health-wise, is actually really, really good. You know, I went for help uh, and straight away I was assessed uh, by a clinical psychiatrist. I'd been a clinical psychiatrist for about 40 years. And she was amazed because they had all my files... She was absolutely amazed that actually a lot of the stuff had been missed and not dealt with correctly. And then I got my diagnosis and things started to improve. So I did eventually get there. But, you know, when when you get a clinical psychiatrist that's been through all your files and gone, do you know what, you should have been diagnosed with this around about the age of 14. I think I was about 34, 35 when I was actually diagnosed. So you do the math there. That's like 20 plus years that I was suffering with this mental health issue, undiagnosed, not a clue what was actually going on, didn't quite understand why I behaved the way I behaved, why I reacted to things the way I reacted, why my emotions were all over the place, why I could be so high and manic one day, but like even in the same day could just fall into this deep depression and, and not want to live anymore you know many a night so I laid in bed falling asleep and going do you know what if I don't wake up tomorrow that'd probably be a good thing you know that that's quite sad really and but all the time that I was sitting there you know it, it took me a lot to actually um even go and seek help here because at the back of my mind was what if they say no I don't need help what if they turn me away again? How am I going to cope with that? So with the anxiety issues as well, it was like that added to the pressure of seeking help. You know, I was anxious that I'd walk in there and say, I need help. Being assessed again and then them sitting there going, we don't think there's anything wrong with you. You don't need help. You're not in crisis or whatever. Or, you know, the crisis team are good don't get me wrong, and things like the surrounds, but if you approach the mental health team, the community mental health team direct, and they don't even assess you, and this has happened a few times, they just say, well, if you feel that bad, have you got the crisis team number? Here's the crisis team number. And I'm like, <clears throat> hang on a minute, I've come to you because I need proper help. You know, I don't know if anybody out there has actually even phoned the crisis team. They don't, like, you don't speak to someone straight away. You talk to uh, a call handler first, and then they put you in the system, and then you're called back. And sometimes that can take hours. Now, I'm not being funny, but if somebody's suicidal and they're told to phone the crisis team and they have to wait for hours and hours and hours for someone to call them back, a lot can happen negatively in those hours. And... I'd I hate to say it, but I can imagine there's a few in that in them suicide statistics that probably were waiting for a call back from the crisis team, but couldn't wait any longer and unfortunately ended their life. So 
in a serious matter, this issue has to be fixed. It has to be looked at. It has to be overhauled. And it has to be correctly changed so that when someone reaches out for help, they're not fobbed off. They're not made to feel like they're being fobbed off. They haven't got to go through this checklist. Not everybody that has a mental health issue doesn't tick every box. You know, each diagnosis is different. Each condition is different, you know. But at the moment, it just seems like in order to even get a diagnosis, at first you have to tick every single box. And that's wrong, you know. Depression, for example, manifests itself in so many different ways that you could go in and be assessed and, and, and say, hey, doc, I, f- I think I'm depressed. But then the doctor might sit there and say, well, I don't think you are, but what we'll do is we'll try on this medication first. And therein lies another issue. The medication is completely ludicrous. I mean, I don't know if anybody out there has actually read, taken the time to read their, the side effects of the medication they might be on. It, it's incredible to believe uh, or get your head around that if you're clinically depressed and you've got suicidal tendencies, that the doctors want to give you a medication that increases those emotions and those feelings. I mean, that's just a bit odd in my in my head. And maybe, maybe I'm just different. Maybe I just look at things a little bit different. But I think that's a bit crazy. Now, I was fortunate because I actually did some... I got on Google and I read about other people's experiences. And a lot of things that kept coming up were uh, bodybuilders, uh, fitness instructors things like that were saying you know I, I was depressed and I had issues so I thought I'd just get myself out once or twice a week to the gym and a couple of years later they're like they're, they're fantastic they're in good good health both physically and mentally so that's what I did I I, I came off the medication although I was, I was a bit basically I just stopped cold turkey it was a bit difficult but going through that getting in the gym was you know made the transition quite easy and there was a time when um, the, the government were pushing, they were trialling um, subsidised gym memberships, so even offering uh, free membership to people with mental health conditions, and it was really successful. But as always, as we often see, anything that succeeds, the government then withdraw funding from, or they don't roll it out and make it a thing. And, and that, again, kind of upset me and made me quite angry because... For for time before they even was doing that, I was always saying, gym over medication, gym over medication. Even if you just go to the gym once a week for half an hour, it's better than the medication they put you on. Believe me, it really is. And then when I when I see this publicly put out thing from the government saying, yes, we're doing this with the mental health up and down the country, we're going to try and get people in the gym instead of on medication... I thought, oh, brilliant, finally, something's actually happening that's going to be a positive change. This is going to be a real good thing. Then, less than a year later, it stopped, it disappeared, it vanished. Now, I don't even know if it's still going on or whether or not they completely pulled it. I could be wrong, it could still be going on. It's just not publicised, which, again, leads me on to another issue. Why are we not really hammering home mental health? It's one of the biggest problems that this country has, you know, and even it's exacerbated even more with this pandemic that we keep getting locked down. So they know the figures of mental health, suicide, depression, anxiety, stress, everything linked to anything mental and the mind. 
is increasing and it's increasing rapidly. More and more people are reaching out and trying to get help. And of course, there's not enough money, there's not enough staff, there's not enough time, there's not enough resources to deal with it. So they go back to the tick box system. And a lot of people are getting missed, you know, and then we're going to see those statistics rise. We're going to see them rise and rise and rise. My question is, how high are these statistics got to get before something drastic is done? You know, that saying, drastic times call for drastic measures. We need a drastic measure for the sake of everybody's mental health. And I I include women in this as well, because mental health affects everybody, no matter uh, colour, creed, race, religion, sex. Do you know what I mean? It affects everybody. But we have got to put a bigger emphasis on male mental health because that's where the biggest negative statistic is. And for me, that's just absolutely crazy. And it's, it should be unacceptable. We're, we're just sitting idly by and just thinking, ah, whatever, just another one. You know what I mean? Not enough is being done. You know, heart disease is on, on the decrease, thank God, you know. But they still get a whole week of awareness you know cancer gets a whole mu- whole month but is often advertised even out of the month that it gets dedicated to it other hidden disabilities they get a month mental health gets one day and we don't see enough it should be every single day because i'm telling you now as anybody knows if you've got a mental health issue or not it's a 365 day a year 24 7 issue for those that do suffer, every day is a battle. Every day is a challenge, you know, just to get through another day. That, that's what I used to. That's what I used to wake up and tell myself: just get through today, see what tomorrow brings. Tomorrow comes, just get through today, see what tomorrow brings. That's the battle. And when you're doing that on your own with no help, it ain't no wonder that there's more more suicides that there is at the moment, you know, because you're isolated. When you feel isolated, you feel let down, you feel like nobody cares when the so-called caring professionals turn around and say, we can't help you. Absolutely crazy, that. I mean, how, how is that, like, normal? You know, what should be normal is if someone reaches out for help, they get the help. You know, these waiting times on the list to get help needs to come down. I'm not being funny, but six, six months on average at the moment in this country. And I can imagine probably by the end of this pandemic, we're going to be, we're going to be seeing like 18 months, possibly even two year waiting lists for people to get help. And I just fear that there's going to be a hell of a lot more suicides in that time. A lot of lives that could have been saved if, those the powers that be just pulled their finger out and gone. Do you know what? There is a right crisis when it comes to the UK's mental health. We really do need to push this now. This needs to be one of our biggest focus and targets that we bring these statistics down. We get the staff in place. We get the money in place. We get the services in place. We get the resources in place so that if someone reaches out, they haven't got to sit there and wait. Well, the waiting list is about six months. I want to hear. We can give you a bell and sort an appointment within a couple of weeks. You know, that's an improvement. But unfortunately, it's just spiralling out of control. And I'm seeing people now on my social media, it used to be full of life, you know, 
working hard, enjoying life. They might have a bit of a stressful day or get a bit overtired. But I'm now seeing those same people now saying, I just feel like shit. I just, I just can't go on. I can't cope. Um, you know, where do I turn? You know, I, I, I don't feel like living anymore. Nah, you know, if, if someone like that it can be that quickly impactive negatively as a result of what's going on in the world at the moment with the, with the pandemic and the lockdowns. And that's just a handful of people on my Facebook and I haven't got that many on there, you know, less than 600 and I'm seeing that. So, you know, have, has anybody out there noticed similar or the same on their social media? these so-called normal people now suffering so you can see why i fear that before long we're going to see absolute crazy lengths of time for any of these people to be able to get help and unfortunately in many cases that help's going to come too late they're not going to be around you know and i can't understand why when we should be preserving life in any way that we can that they are not doing it in the area that people end their own lives. They're not preventing. The, they're not preserving life. It's it's just crazy. So you know, as a whole, my experiences with mental health teams across the UK have been quite negative. And many, when I've suffered, I haven't actually reached out to through the fear of they're not going to help me. They're just going to tell me the same old crap that. Every other other person's told me, you know, it's like um, when they say, um, we don't think you're in crisis, we don't think you need help. That's the professional equivalent of man up, get over it, pull yourself together. That's what it is. That's what it feels like. It's like a kicking, kicking the fucking bollocks, to be honest. Seriously is. I mean, it, there, there's, there's a 20-something-year-old walking into an office covered in blood because he's sliced all his arms open, been doing it for a... A, a, a number of months it's on his GP record that he's been doing it for a number of months walks in finally at breaking point gets assessed for over two hours and then told we don't think you're in crisis we can't help you off you go literally that's what it is now can you imagine being 20 something you know going through that and being told sorry we can't help you but my, my other thought was what if I was female now, don't get me wrong, I'm not being sexist, but what if I was female? Because I, I see it more today as well, that it's almost like the media don't want to put it out that men have issues. And I've raised this issue every single time I spot it. And it's like this. We'll get men need to talk, don't man up. Um, you know, it's okay not to be okay. All this. And we'll get a couple of adverts on TV, but then the news will come on after that advert... And straight away, they'll be highlighting a major female issue. I'm like, wait, hang on a minute. So we've got this crisis in the country, men committing suicide, not getting mental health issues. You put on one advert during the whole day and you choose to put that advert right on before the news comes on and they've got a story about a female issue. So the spotlight goes straight back onto women. Surely someone like in... Who, who does program scheduling and news scheduling, surely they could, like, do, like, that advert, then put, like, uh, talk talk to someone from a charity that deals with men's mental health specifically or more than other mental health. 
and just really emphasize the push that we need to look at how we're dealing with men's mental health you know we can't keep just going like it's like um i don't know <coughs> excuse me it's like just briefly flashing a flashlight on it and then turning a big floodlight onto something completely different and it's soon forgotten. We already know our our attention spans nowadays because of social media is very short. That's true. That's the truth. So we see a subject and then we'll see another subject that we might relate to. We'll forget about the first subject very, very quickly. Then another subject that we can relate to, we'll forget about the second subject that we've seen. So in order to keep your attention, it needs to be in your face all day, every day, to be honest. I mean, that's the only way I can see it really working, is it has to be in your face all day, every day. Because if it's not, it's very soon forgotten. <coughs> oh, got right cough, sorry. But, you know, so if it's not in your face all day, every day, it's soon forgotten. And then we get one day World Mental Health Day. Oh, it's every single day, every single second minute and hour of every day for someone living with it. it that's their battle every single day. You know, even even like recently, I've started to have a few little down moments because I'm now starting to struggle because I'm now in week two without the gym. So, but the, the one thing I'm keeping in my mind is this time around, it's only four weeks. It's not three months like last time. Three months was a right struggle for me to to keep my mind on. I'll be in the gym soon. I'll be in the gym soon. So I'm I'm thankful for that. Uh, I feel fortunate for that that I've got I've got that strength in me at the moment. Just to just know that we're not far off and we're getting closer to getting back. And I can I can resume what I do that keeps me mentally like safe, mentally strong or I should say stronger, you know, I still have my days, I mean, I'm, I'm BPD, um, so for those that know about BPD or suffer from BPD, you know you know what I'm, I'm getting at on, on how quick your head can change, you know. But there's also a sense of anxiety as well about returning, which is crazy because I'm excited about returning, but I'm also quite anxious because it's stepping back out into the world, you know, that's, you know, for me, that's what the BPD does. It, it it throws up questions with answers, but then you question the answer and then you've got to find an answer to that question. And then that, that answer raises even more questions in my head. So my head's constantly on the turn. It's like, it goes a million miles an hour sometimes, you know, so... Yeah, so that, that, that's really my gripe about the mental health services. It, it Something really does need to be done about it on a serious level <clears throat> and I don't know I mean I've been trying to think of ways that maybe like I could I could do it so the powers that be really stand up and take note and and maybe start actually putting some money into it and getting some staff in there and you know uh, uh, making resources available for people like me like yourselves that you haven't got to sit there and and dread making a call because I think that that was the big thing for me to get past. I dreaded making that call to make the appointment, and then obviously the anxiety kicked in because I'd wait. I'd wait like about two weeks for the GP appointment. It was it wasn't too bad, you know. You, you often get you often can get into a GP quicker than you can get with a mental health team, but 
you know, when I walked out of the doctor's office and I'm sat down, I said, I just think my head's broke. <laughs> uh, what's going on? And we sat and had a chat. He said, yeah, you, you, need to, you need to be referred. And he put me on an urgent referral. I don't know if all GP surgeons can do that, but he put me on an urgent referral. And I think it was, it, it was less than a week, I think, you know. And the, the place I had to go and get assessed was, was miles and miles away. But they even paid for a taxi for me there and back. So, you know, for me, Yorkshire and Humber, NHS Trust with Mental Health, were absolutely fantastic. It was a lovely place to go. It, felt, it was really comfortable. It felt safe. You know, it's a very specific, dedicated unit. They actually house people with severe mental health issues as well that can't function uh, in in normal society. They can't live independently or, you know, they've got to a point where they needed to be committed, but instead of committing them to a hospital, it's like a really nice home uh, uh, home situation. So it's a really good place. And uh, I was... I felt really, really fortunate and really, really lucky that that this place exists. And I think uh, if if someone from government sat me down and said, so Dan, what do you think we need to do? I'd give this place as an example and say, we need a place like that in every town, city, town and city, local to people that they can get to. We need that because that place is absolutely amazing and outstanding. And they were the ones that sat there and went, yes, you really are you really are in need of help, so this is what we're going to do. And it just went on from there, and I've got a fantastic professional support team, you know, and I've got fantastic friends through it because when I had this and I got the diagnosis and I understood more about what was going on in my head, it allowed me then to get the confidence to actually talk to my closest friends about it because that's another thing that uh, particularly in men, you know, they feel afraid or they feel ashamed about confiding in a close friend because, you know, uh, BPD, one of the things is a fear of abandonment. So when you've got close friends, you don't want to tell them anything that they that you think they, they might look at you and go, fuck this, I don't want to be with, I don't want to be associated with them, you know what I mean? And they abandon you as well, you know, leaving you right back at square one. So I've got the confidence to explain. And the way I did it is I got I found like a really simple uh, bullet point fact sheet about BPD. I said, look, I, you know, I've been diagnosed with something called BPD. I sent a link, I said, just have a read of that, you know, and if you've got any questions, you know, just ask me and I'll tell you, like, what, what what I've been going through, and uh, yeah, so my friends are like really good. They absolutely get it. They're like, wow, you know. So some of them like are even still amazed. I still crack on and uh, and living the life I'm living, even though I've got this, you know, and I'm going to have it for life. Now, the one of the things that actually did shock me about my BPD diagnosis is I didn't actually know this at the time, um, but it's actually more common in women. But if you are diagnosed as a man, if they catch it early enough, actually, apparently, so you can actually be cured from it. You can recover from it. But they said, because I've had it for such a long time and it took them so long to narrow it down to what it was that I had, that I'm going to have this for life. It's going to be one of those things that I'm just going to have to live with. And at the time, I thought, oh, this is going to this is going to define me. This is it. Do you know what I mean? I did. I started thinking, wow, oh. You know, but then I thought, no, do you know what? That ain't me. Not really. It's just a part of me. So I embraced it. 
and then I started using the positive things that it taught me to do things like this podcast, you know, just, just sitting there having a chat, rambling along about it. Most of it probably doesn't make sense to many of you, but I hope to most that it does. And you, in you, um, if you ever find yourself in a position, anything mentally, you know, you're struggling, reach out, just reach out. That's, I keep saying it, just reach out, confide in someone. It only takes you to confide in one person and you'll see a big difference in the way you approach things. Because if you confide in that one person, you've got that one person you can keep going back to. And then as you get the confidence and the trust and the faith in one one individual, you'll find it easier to get that confidence and trust and faith in another. You know, And it doesn't matter if it takes one person or 10 people, at some point you'll have the confidence, trust and faith to reach out to professionals. You know, I know it's difficult, and I've said like a lot of places they are struggling, but put yourself in a position where whilst you're waiting for the professionals, you've got one or two people you can confide in. So if you struggle and you don't want to wait three hours for a phone call from the crisis team or you're anxious about the length of time it's going to take for a professional to get in touch with you and make that first appointment, you've got someone there that you can drop a text to, pick up the phone to, you know what I mean? And you can talk to them on the hardest days and again i can't reiterate it enough a support network is absolutely vital to your mental health do not sit there and suffer alone sit there and suffer alone and not speaking out or confiding in someone is the worst thing you can do because you're just left alone with your own thoughts your own head and remember like the mental health is the head that's broken that needs repairing, that needs rebooting, that needs refreshing, that needs reassurance, that needs sorting out, it needs help, it needs attention. So don't sit there arguing with yourself and second-guessing yourself or overthinking your own thoughts. Reach out and talk to someone. You need that You need that outside perspective, trust me, you really do. Without that, you really will struggle and I don't want you to become another statistic because you were too afraid to reach out or felt you had no one. You know, there's plenty of people out there. You can always find me on Facebook. I say it all the time. You can drop me a message and I'll talk to you. You know, no judgment. You know what I mean? Don't even have to use your real name. Make make up a fake account, message me on that. I don't, I don't need to know your name. We'll just sit there. We'll talk. We'll message. We'll text. Whatever it is that will help you, I will do that. I mean, if, even if you have to wake me up at two o'clock in the morning and sit there messaging me till seven, eight o'clock in the morning, I've got plenty of coffee. I'll keep drinking coffee. I'll sit up with you and I'll talk because I'd rather that than you sit there on your own and go, that's it, I'm done. And I don't know, take an overdose or cut your wrists or hang yourself or whatever. You know, I'd rather you lived and struggled and talked than struggled and, and end your life. Because suicide's permanent. That's that's the that's the thing. It's permanent. The pain for you will end, but the pain for those you leave behind will live with them for forever. You know they will hurt. They will miss you. You, know, you can't come back from suicide. That's the truth. So don't sit there and let it get to that point. Please just reach out to somebody, anybody that you feel you can confide in, because. That's the biggest turning point for me when I got the diagnosis. I started actually talking to people about it that were closest to me. And even though I was still a little bit scared that they might start to distance themselves from me, 
they didn't. They actually got closer to me, and they they like every, every, every day I get at least one message from at least one of them. How are you feeling today? You're right. What are you doing? Do you know what I mean? And that it's a little boost. It's a mental boost to know that someone that's a few miles away or hundred miles away, they've actually thought about you and gone. Oh, I'll just reach out and make sure he's all right. Do you know what I mean? So that's an amazing feeling. It's like a natural natural medication that you know someone actually cares enough and thinks about you at that moment in time that they pick up their device and instead of scrolling through crappy social media that's like like i've already talked about he's just fucking with everybody's mental health anyway they've gone oh fuck fuck scrolling through facebook i'm gonna you know i'm gonna reach out to dan see if he's all right and you know it's it's great and then i'll you know one of them are caught and i'll end up sitting on the phone for four hours just talking about anything and everything but you know for, for that time it's it's positive and you feel good. You don't feel so alone or isolated. You don't feel negative. So, you know, I do, I stress it in every every one of my episodes of Kohaz, get a support network. And then when you're confident and you feel confident enough, go to your local mental health team. Yes, it's not going to happen overnight and that's a sad thing. But like I said, if you've got the support network there, that time it takes for the professionals to get in touch will actually pass a lot quicker because one of the things I found when I struggled alone, an hour in a day could last, it felt like it lasted 10 hours. Do you know what I mean? I'd, I'd, I'd sit there and think, oh, loads of times passed, I look up the clock, and only 20 minutes has passed. It's like time slows down, it really does, and it's just, oh, God, it's not even 5 o'clock yet, oh. You know, it's not even nine o'clock. It's not even eleven o'clock at night yet. I'm not even feeling tired. So all those things. But if you've got someone you can sit there and blast two hours on the phone with, two hours flies by. Before you know it, a day's done. You're another day closer to your appointment and 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 starting that professional road to recovery, help and support. You know, not all of us are going to fully recover. That's a fact. It's true, but. You'll get tools and you'll get understanding and you'll get connections that you can use to to live. You know, that's what you need to do, live. You know, with mental health, I think people stop living and they just become in a state of existence. You know, you, you're somebody, but you're nobody. You're there, but you're not. You know what I mean? You want to carry on, but you want to give up. And, you know, that's where like bad things can start to happen. So I'm just going to leave you on that note. Get out there, start building your support network, and then when you've got the confidence, reach out to the professionals. It will take time, but once you take that first step, you know you're on that road. Every great journey starts with a single step. It's a great proverb. You know, I love that one. And when I took my first step, it's been a few years on a journey. It's had its highs, it's had its lows, but... I'm I'm there, I'm doing this, and I'm doing some pretty cool stuff with life now, you know, so get your support network, and uh, I'll catch you on episode six. Thanks, guys. See you later.